19, where over the next couple weeks we will be wrapping up our journey through the life of David, and where we have been, last time we were in the narrative of David and David's life, we were in the passage of Scripture where David's son Amnon had raped his daughter, or his half-sister, David's daughter and Amnon's half-sister Tamar, and then David's other son, Absalom, went out and plotted the murder of Amnon, his half-brother. One of the reasons why I love the Bible is that the Bible is filled with many very personal, very powerful, and very poignant stories. Stories that deal with real-life struggles, real-life tragedy, and real emotions of what it is like to live in a broken and fallen world. This passage that we are focusing on today, which deals with the death of Absalom and David's grief over the death of his son, is certainly one in that category. And it is a passage that is filled with many different tensions, many literary tensions, many different tensions, many emotional tensions, and we will focus on some of those here this morning. Follow along with me as I read from 2 Samuel chapter 18. At this point, Absalom has started a civil war to overthrow the throne from his father. Then David mustered the men who were with him, and he set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us, therefore it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake, with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. The man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof, Joab said. I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand, and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. 
and ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and they threw him in a great pit in the forest, and they raised over him a very great heap of stones, and Israel fled every one of them to his own town. The story then continues about two messengers who want to bring the message back to David. Joab's deciding which one to send. Eventually, both of them go. The first messenger to go, Ahimaaz, cries to the king as he gets to him, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth, and he said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who has raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and he stood still. And behold, the Cushite, the next messenger, and the Cushite said, good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and he said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you for today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And the king arose, and he took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, I praise you for the honesty of emotion and the raw intensity that is not foreign to our lives this day. And so, Father, in the midst of the tensions of this passion, passage, in the midst of the tensions that we ourselves experience, Lord, would your grace meet us? Would your spirit bind us to Jesus Christ? That we would find hope, that we would find peace for our tension in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We as a nation currently are in a season where 
it is particularly obvious that there is a national tension over how we as people deal with our past. And it's happening in many different spheres. Yesterday I was reading an article about September 11th and the tension currently going on in lower Manhattan. Tension of what to do with the staircase that survivors ran out of, ran out of the World Trade Centers on. Does it go into a museum? Do they preserve it? Do they leave it where it is? Do they move it and build a new building so that the city can move forward? What do they do with it? Tension between remembering the past and moving forward with the future. There's a tension also in our national, that is every week there's another one in the news, about the tension of what to do with some building, some statue, some school that has the name of a person on it. A person who was a great contributor to a particular cause, but also a person who had a sordid past or who committed great atrocities, particularly today in the areas of race and racial oppression. And I have no comment on the appropriateness of whether or not to put up a statue or put down a statue. But what I will comment on is that in the midst of this discussion that has been going on for the last several years, as people have argued these things that they are either black or white, that this person was either good or bad, one of the things that has been missing from the discussion and utterly absent is the color gray, is the recognition that there are people who have done good things and also at times it is, very the, same, it is, the, it is the same people who have done absolutely awful things. And the way that the argument is characterized and the way that positions are, are volleyed to get the will of one group over the other, there is a simplistic reduction where people are viewed, or the monument at stake is people are viewed as either unqualifiedly great or unequivocally evil. Unqualifiedly great, such as the raising back up of the statue of Joe Paternal, that he was unqualifiedly great, there's nothing else to discuss. Or statues of other people who were un unequivocally evil. And in the midst of it, there is no discussion that people, that there is this tension in life that people do good things and people also do awful things, that life is not one-dimensional, that life for every one of us is lived out in the midst of many tensions. For many of us, the tension, one of the tensions we live is that there are good things we do and there are bad things that we do. There are positive contributions that we make and there are negative contributions that we make. There are people that we love who have done good things and people that we've loved who the very same people who have done bad things in the midst of that tension. But there are tensions that continue to pull at us in many different directions. Take, a, take, take, for example, just the tension of life. That maybe one day you wake up and you're really sick. But it's the day when you are slated to give a very big presentation at work or school. What do you do? You get up and you give the presentation and you don't let on that you're sick. And you live in the midst of the tension. That you have pressures at work. Pressures that are very um, unnerving. Pressures that are very threatening. But you also have responsibilities with your family, and your family needs you to be wholly present for them. What do you do? Do you come home and dump the whole tension of your work environment on your family? No. It's the tension of both of those responsibilities pulling in different directions. We come to this passage here today with many characters who are living in the midst of raw tension, raw emotion, raw responsibilities that are pulling them in opposite directions. And in particular, we are going to focus on David, who is dealing with the tension of his own personal grief and what it means to live life in the face of grief. 
We also see here the tension of the reality of death and the death of loved ones who had set their face against God. And what does it mean when you are a person of faith, a follower of Jesus, and you have loved ones who have been absolutely opposed, and that when they die, you know that they did not have a relationship with the Lord, tensions that each and every one of us deal with. So we're going to examine several of these tensions here this morning and increase your anxiety, um, is what we're going to do. So the first tension that we are going to look at is the tension of grief itself. And the way that Scripture lays out this tension is that the tension of grief is that it is something, that it is, com- it is completely common for every one of us, but it is wholly unnatural. Wholly unnatural. David wails every parent's worst nightmare. And he bemoans and wails what would be every parent's sincere desire when he gets the news of his son being impaled. He says, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David has been smacked with grief. And when grief hits us, and it will hit every one of us, sometimes it hits us tragically, sometimes it hits us expectedly, but it always hits us miserably. And David, when he gets this news, he is hit with a profound grief when he hears of Absalom's death. He is shaken to the core. He is overcome with grief because David has lost yet another son whom he loved. He already had his daughter Tamar raped by his, half, his other son, half, Tamar's half-brother Amnon. He had his son Amnon murdered by his half-brother Absalom. And now David has his son Absalom impaled and under a pile of stones as a disgrace. When grief comes, and it will come, you cannot prepare for it. You cannot plan how to respond. No matter how anticipated or how unexpected the death might be, death shakes every one of us to the core. You will hurt. You will ache. You will grieve. And it will be different than anyone else's. I worked under a hospital chaplain who was a national expert in death and dying. He uh, worked in hospice. He was wrote many books on how to comfort families and how to encourage families to find their hope in the Lord in the midst of death, in the midst of death of loved ones. And this national expert in bereavement, his father died. And unfortunately, the other chaplains on staff did a very poor job of comforting him in the loss of his father. And he came to them and he said, he said, why, he was upset with him. He said, why did none of you care for me the way that you would have cared for any one of your, anyone of anyone in the hospital who lost a loved one? Why did you not do that? And their response was, what do I have to say to the expert? And he said, who is an expert in having their father die? Something that you cannot prepare for even if you're the expert. That grief is something that is completely common 
But as believers in Jesus Christ, those who understand the Word of God, we also know that it is something that is wholly unnatural. It is an intruder into God's good creation. Paul Tripp summarizes it this way. He says, death is the living enemy of everything that is good and beautiful about life as God planned it. Death should make you morally sad and righteously mad. Death should make you morally sad and righteously mad. Death is a cruel indicator that this world is broken and not functioning according to God's original design. In his plan, life was to give way to life, giving way to life on into eternity. But death is an intruder, wholly unnatural, an unnatural intruder into God's good creation that has become commonplace for every one of us. And David at this moment is smacked with grief over the loss of his son. But like so many of us at the times of grief, when death comes to our door, is that the heartache associated with that grief oftentimes begins years before. And that's absolutely what happened to David. Is that the second tension is grief and heartache. Because you consider David's relationship with Absalom. Absalom as a son was a scoundrel in the worst possible ways. He took revenge on his sister's rape by killing his half-brother. He then was exiled for two years, eventually made some sort of peace agreement, came back into the kingdom. But Absalom also was the media darling of ancient Israel. He was one who had unparalleled good, look, good looks. Verse, chapter 14, verse 25 tells us that from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, he was hot, and everybody knew it. And he was handsome, and he used that to leverage himself amongst the people. And so what happened is that not too long later, what Absalom did is that as people came to, the came to town, he set himself up to usurp his father's throne. As people from all Israel would come together, this is in chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, as they'd come together, Absalom would intercept them. They'd bring their, their complaint to the king, a dispute for the king to settle, and Absalom would intercept them. And he'd say, oh, but he's not here to listen to you today. today. If only one like me would be around to listen to you, then you would have all of your problems settled. And what the text says is that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel, and they stole them away from his father, the king. After that, this stealing of hearts turned into a popular revolt. There was a coup to overthrow David and his family and his rulers and those who were loyal to them. David gets word of it in advance. He flees the city. Absalom comes into the city, and to make his mark, what does he do? He sets up a tent on the roof of his father's castle. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel, which something in the first place was the disgrace that David had them, and Absalom makes it a bigger disgrace. After this disgrace, the scourge in his father, he then plots his father's murder, his father gets word of it and escapes. As he gets escaped, that then turns into outright civil war in the passage that we come to today. David mustered the men who were with him and set, them, set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And this was David's son. The grief and heartache in that relationship began long before Absalom's death. There was grief and heartache over the loss of the relationship. Anguish over the choices that David's son had made. Anguish over the betrayal and the treason that his son, Absalom, had for his father, David. 
And yet in the midst of all this, deeper than the dysfunction of their relationship, is the love of a father for his son. But his heartache is great. And there is a greater area for heartache that David knew all too well. It was that not only did Absalom have a problem of rebelling against the king, but Absalom had a much bigger problem. And that not only was he rebelling against the king, but he was rebelling against God himself. Absalom had not only set himself against David, but against the God who had put David in charge as the shepherd of God's people. And David knew that deliverance for David necessitated destruction of Absalom. He knew that to be the case. Maybe he was trying to deny it. But the reality stands that if the kingdom of God is threatened with destruction by one who has set his face against God and set his face against God's anointed, at this point, King David, then that threat must be destroyed. That person, that enemy, must be eradicated. Salvation for you from the evil in this world entails the destruction of the evil that is in this world. Let me personalize this. I have many family and friends who I love dearly, who are opposed to God and are opposed to his king, Jesus. I pray for them. I grieve for them. I pray for opportunities to share the hope of Jesus with them. And as pastor of this church, it's several times a year that I have the privilege of journeying along some of you as you deal with the tragedy of the death of a loved one who, by every indication, had no interest in the Lord, had no relationship with him, and many times was outright opposed and shook his fist at God. And as Christians, you deal with the question, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with the death of a son like Absalom or a family member like Absalom who has lived their life in outright rebellion to God? And I believe the way you deal with it is that you throw yourself upon the character of God. Is that God is the source of all love. He is still the source of all truth. And he is still the source of all justice. And there are none of those things. There is no love, no grace, no mercy, no truth, no justice that exists outside of him. And God always does right. He never does wrong. He always does right. And though it may be hard for me to comprehend at this point in time, there is a day coming when I will give God unending, unhindered, unconstrained praise because of his grace, because of his love, because of his judgment, because of his right action in dealing with each and every person that I love. And I will join in unending and unceasing praise to God for his loving, gracious, and righteous character. And that tension between my love for people in this world and my grieving over them and the praise of God which I will give to him for all eternity, for his love, grace, and truth, there are aspects of that that will not be fully reconciled in this lifetime. 
And there is a tension that will continue to exist, and hopefully it's a tension that motivates me and you to pursue our loved ones with the truth of Jesus Christ. John Piper, in writing on this tension, in an article he talks about how he ardently prays for each of his children, and how he prays that God will use them for the furtherance of his kingdom, and how he is hopeful and confident that God will. But he concludes by saying this, but I am not ignorant that God may not have chosen my sons for his sons. And though I think I would give my life for their salvation, if they should be lost to me, I would not rail against the Almighty. He is God. I am but a man. The potter has absolute rights over the clay. Mine is to bow before his unimpeachable character and believe that the judge of all the earth has ever and always will do right. Mine is to bow before the unimpeachable character, that there is no accusation, no criticism. There is no complaint against the character of God that can or will stand. Mine is to bow before his unimpeachable character, and my hope is to believe that in the situation with my loved ones, that the judge of all the earth has ever and always will do right. It is the tension of grief and heartache over our loved ones. Third tension, we've got four of them here. The third tension is this, is the tension of dealing with grief and present responsibilities. The tension of grief and getting on. Grief, anguish, heartache can be completely and utterly overwhelming. At the same time, we are often put in situations that in the midst of grief, that there are responsibilities that we have that require unclouded judgment. And it is an awful tension to be in, but rarely is life one-dimensional. We see it two times in this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 5, when as they are going out, when David's loyal subjects who have rejected the invitation to align themselves with the coup and the rebellion, when David's loyal subjects are going out to battle and give their lives, and maybe 10,000 of them would give their lives in his place, when they are going out to battle, to defend the kingdom and to defend the promises of God that God gave to David as they are going out to battle that the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. We feel the tension, don't we? You feel it. The situation that David is in. Yet scholars unanimously comment that in David giving this command that he is abandoning his moral and military duties due to his personal feeling. But there is a second time, maybe it was a little bit less controversial, chapter 19, verse 3. After they came back victorious, it says the people stole into the city that day as people who steal in, who are ashamed when they flee in battle. David's people have just gone out and risked their lives, risked their family. Some of them are returning home without fathers, without sons, without brothers, so that David could still be alive. And as they are returning home, David is 
His grief is, over, is clouding his judgment. And so Joab rebukes him. Joab, who's this enigmatic character of positive and negative things, Joab rebukes him. For David's grief is clouding his judgment. It is clouding his duties to his loyal troops who willingly were giving their lives for his, who know that their lives would be preserved if he died instead of them. It's clouding his duties to his troops who are coming back into the city as people who are ashamed. When David should be commending them, at least thanking them for their service and sacrifice. But it's also clouding David's gratitude that he should have towards God. Gratitude for God for saving the nation. For preserving God's promise to all mankind that there would be a redeemer who'd come through the line of David. God's promise to David to establish his, his kingdom. The tension is awful. The tension of dealing with the grief and dealing with responsibilities that require unclouded judgment. Rarely does life allow us or permit us to be one-dimensional. I think of a friend of ours who lost their child several days after their newborn had just been born. What's the mother to do? Overwhelming grief over the child that has been lost. But responsibilities... For the child that has, they have just welcomed into their family. A horrific and awful tension. But a tension that is not unfamiliar in this life. Next tension, if it weren't bad enough, is the tension not only of grief and responsibility, but the tension of grief and guilt. And certainly David's guilt is exacerbating his grief over his son. He has guilt because... He has guilt and grief because it is the guilt for the consequences of his own sin is the result of his current grief. Because David, after committing adultery with Bathsheba and arranging the, the murder of Uriah and the treason and the cover-up and all along that went with that, and after he embraced the, the forgiveness that God gave to him, Nathan gave him this prophecy that there were still consequences from David's actions. Two of the things that the prophecy said, that Nathan the prophet said, one, that there would be a massive sexual disgrace in David's, before, with David's wives and concubines before the household of Israel, which Absalom did. And that the sword would never depart from David's own family line. There were real consequences. And so David is mourning the grief of his loss of his son, but he is also mourning because of the guilt, because he himself was the one that contributed to his own children's death. And there's not just simply the guilt of that, but there is also the guilt that he has of David's failure to discipline his own children. The beginning of 1 Kings, when Adonijah, the next in line for the throne, decides to also usurp David, the text gives this, gives this comment that his father David had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done this and so? Which is saying, David had never said to his sons, you were wrong. He had never said to his sons, why did you do that? That was, that was wrong. You need to change your actions. David had never corrected his children. And so maybe there's, David has this guilt that maybe if he had disciplined Amnon for the rape of Tamar, if there had been some justice for the rape of his daughter, then maybe Absalom wouldn't have a chip on his shoulder. And maybe if David had confronted Absalom for the murder of Amnon, they wouldn't be in the situation that they are today. 
And maybe if David had reconciled with Absalom instead of shunning him and putting him in this like quasi-shunned state, that Absalom wouldn't have tried to overthrow the throne. And maybe if David had disciplined Adonijah, as the verse says, then maybe Adonijah, the next in line, that maybe he too would not try to usurp the throne. See, David's guilt and the consequences of his own sin is a direct result of the situation. The situation that he's in is the direct result of his own guilt and his own actions. And David's grief has been aggravated and intensified by his guilt that contributed to the actions of others. And David can do nothing to rectify his guilt. Absalom is dead. Amnon is dead. Tamar has been raped. So which is greater for David? In this tension? Is it his guilt or is it his grief? I don't know. Now I imagine that at this point you're feeling some of these tensions. <laughs> and some of these tensions, tragically, have been unavoidably present in some of your lives. And these tensions can only be resolved by going to the cross of Jesus Christ. The only way to deal with them is to, to turn to the, is to turn to the cross of Jesus. For the only hope of real peace and real forgiveness is to go to the one and only real, true, loving God and the one who is the forgiving God. The God against whom we alone have sinned. The God whom against we alone have sinned, yet who also sent his own son to the cross to purchase forgiveness for us. The way that this is talked about today in our culture, in our schools and colleges, if you've taken a psychology class in a college in America, one of the main things that's emphasized that what, what needs to happen, what David needs to really do, he really needs to forgive himself here. In order for him to move on, he needs to, he needs to have self-forgiveness. But the Bible nowhere talks about forgiving yourself. For that matter, it nowhere talks about loving yourself either. Why? Because self-forgiveness does not heal. Self-forgiveness cannot heal. Why? Because you have no power in yourself to free yourself from sin. None of us, we have no power within ourselves to cleanse ourselves from the shame of our sin, no power within ourselves to alleviate the guilt of our sin. And so if a Christian says, which Christians this day, in these days not uncommonly do, when they're dealing with past guilt, maybe guilt for situations that cannot be changed, Christians wrongly say something like this. They say, you know what, I, I believe that God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. A person who says that is confused, and they are not understanding, or they are not applying, or they are not believing the gospel. They're either not understanding it, or they're not applying it. That's not an opinion, that's a fact. And the amazing thing about Jesus Christ and the work of his cross is that even regrets in our life that cannot be undone, that they're actually amazingly, mind-bogglingly, mind, in a mind-boggling way, that there is healing and forgiveness through Jesus Christ and through his cross. And the tension for every one of us is that we live a life, that the life of faith is a life that is lived, that will be shaken by grief and will be shaken by heartache. And God has chosen to not remove us 
from this broken world. He has chosen to not remove us from the tragedy and the heartache and the reality of death and the daily reality of that for some of us, if not many of us. And I believe that part of the reason why he has done so, why he has chosen to not remove us, is because death and the tragedy of death for us and indeed for all of mankind should serve as an ever-present reminder that death is common, but it is unnatural, that death is an intruder into God's good creation, that every one of us in the face of death can say, it shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't be like this. That it's a reminder that death is a cancer upon the creation, and an ever-present reminder that this world needs a rescuer from the cancer of death, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus Christ that the triumph of death is no more. And the shadow of death becomes no more. And the victory and the sting of death will be no more. Death shakes us to the core, but there is victory only in Jesus Christ. Another tension maybe more accurately as a a paradox. A paradox of the Christian life is that Christians should be the saddest people on the face of the earth and the most joyful people on the face of the earth. That Christians in in times of death should be the saddest people on the face of the earth. Why? We should be the saddest people because we know how sin brought death into the world. We know it's not natural, even though everyone else says that it is. We know that it's not natural, and so we grieve over the loss of the one that we love. But we as Christians also grieve that death is still destroying God's good creation. Something that was never meant to be has become common experience. And so Christians should be the, 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 the biggest realists and the saddest people in the face of death, yet at the same time, Christians should be the most joyful people because we do not grieve as people without hope. Now, you consider David. David cried out, Absalom, Absalom, oh, my son, Absalom, oh, that I would have died instead of you. And remarkably, what God says to us as his children if you're adopted into his family through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Remarkably, that what God says to his children is not, oh, my child, oh, my child, that I would die instead of you, but oh, my child, I have died instead of you. And in Jesus Christ, God himself takes the pain of his beloved children. He takes the punishment of his beloved children, and he offers himself in our place. You know, David shed tears for his own guilt, and he shed tears for his own grief. But Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. That's why Isaiah writes that he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Jesus says to each and every one of you, in me I have borne your guilt on the cross. In me I have been covered with your shame. In me, I, as the only one who could, I have carried your grief and I have borne your sorrows. Maybe, maybe that's why, maybe it's because these tensions in our life are so intense And maybe it's because these tensions in our life can be so unrelenting that it has to be God himself who will wipe away every tear from your eyes because no person can. For he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Brothers and sisters who live in the tensions of this life. May you know the God in whom our tensions find peace. May you know the God in whom and only in whom our tensions find resolution. And may you know the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died instead of you and has risen from the grave to give you new life this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We come before you as people who live in the midst of tension. Father, there are some of us here who are dealing with the heartaches and tragedies of this life. Father, there are some of us here who are dealing with waves of grief and waves of grief that seem to not go away. There are some of us here, Father, who the very contemplation of your word and people in your word who grieve like David is like being overcome with a fever that causes us to break out in sweats because of the tragedy, because of the aching, because of the hurt and pain of loved ones we have lost. And so, Father, this day, we as your people come before you keenly aware of the fragility of this life, keenly aware of the commonality of death, but also knowing that death is an intruder and we feel it. And so, Father, we beseech you that you would send your spirit to bind up the brokenhearted, that, Father, this day that you would carry our griefs, that you would bear our sorrows. Lord, that, you're, that those here today whose hearts are aching, 
that your presence would surround them, that they would know your presence and know that you are the one who holds their hand and that even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they will fear no evil because you, their father, will not abandon them and will not forsake them. Father, every one of us in this room can think of loved ones who have and who are shaking their fist at you and who live in rebellion against you. Father, there are some of us for whom it is an utterly terrifying thought to think of sharing our faith or talking about the hope of Jesus with them, and it is utterly terrifying. And yet, Father, we are dealing with the tension that it is more terrifying to consider an eternity for them apart from you. So, Father, we pray for your spirit to turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. We pray for your spirit to draw people unto yourself. And, Lord, for the people that you have stuck us in their lives. Father, would you give us opportunities to share the hope of Jesus. Lord, would you make our lives a a sweet fragrance so that when our family members see us, they would say, I want what you have. Could you tell me about your hope? Lord, we can't do that. We need you to do this. And, oh, Lord, we beseech you that you would. Through the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our substitute, we pray. Amen.